Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, or your scripture journals, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 8. Luke and chapter 8. And as promised last week, we're going to finish chapter 8 today. So we'll be in verses 40 through 56, okay? 40 through 56 this morning. We started Luke back in November. And I also want to mention that we are going to uh, take a break in the first, uh, all of July, okay? From uh, Luke, we'll jump back into Luke in August, but for July, we're going to do our annual summer in Psalms. And so what we try to do, if you're unfamiliar in, in uh, our summer in Psalms, is we try to do every week a, a psalm from a different genre. And so uh, there are different genres of psalms, so we try to cover uh, one a week from those. And so we'll do it again, start next week in Psalm 90, okay? But something else neat that we also do is... Uh, after we read the psalm and preach the psalm, we sing the psalm. And so be on the lookout on Facebook. Uh, Daniel will be posting links to the songs we're going to sing after the psalms so that you can listen to them and maybe familiarize yourself with that. All right, but today we're going to be in Luke and chapter 8, verses 40 through uh, 56. If you got it, say, I got it. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. So let's go ahead and read this together. God's Word says... Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a, ma uh, a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except for Peter, John, and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Let me ask you a question. Do you consider yourself a patient person? How many of you think you're patient? Yeah? Ish? I noticed couples, you know, they know if they raise their hand, their spouse is going to look at them and go, you sure about that? Now, let me ask this. Do you think you have grown more or less patient over the course of, say, the last decade? More? Less? Le 
this way? I think any reasonable person, right, would look at the world of 2022 and conclude that we as a society have become increasingly impatient, right? And it'll probably only get worse. You think that's fair? It'll probably only get worse. I want you to consider, for example, rap rage. Have you ever heard of rap rage before? Rap rage is the frustration people report feeling when they have to open a shrink-wrapped package. <laughs> you know, using scissors or your teeth or blowtorch, whatever, right? Because we want things to be easy and quick. We shouldn't have to fuss with this, right? Smartphones and the internet have not helped us at all, right? Now, now we get instant information and connectivity. If you were arguing in 1995 who ran for the most rushing yards in 1981, right, in the SEC, you just would not know, right? You'd have to be okay not knowing. Now you pull out these insufferable, right, rectangles and get the instant answer. Show, studies have shown that people can't wait more than a few seconds for something like a video to load. One researcher examined the viewing habits of 6.7 million internet users, and can you guess how long subjects were willing to be patient? Two seconds. After that, they started abandoning, the researchers said. After five seconds, the abandonment rate is 25%. When you get to 10 seconds, half are gone. Another researcher said the need for instant gratification is not new, but our expectation of instant has become faster, and as a result, our patience is thinner. Who can't? You can resonate with this, right? Who doesn't get a little testy when the stoplight takes too long? The package that was supposed to be delivered today has been delayed till tomorrow. The line at the grocery store isn't moving quick enough. The buffering of the video is taking longer than we prefer. The food is taking too long to come out at the restaurant when someone doesn't return our text and calls quick enough. And on and on we could go. We're growing more impatient and it's having an adverse effect on us, on our moods, on how we treat others and what we think we're entitled. But more than that, I wonder if our trend towards less patience isn't having an effect on our faith. What if the way we view God and how he relates to us and how he providentially rules over our circumstance is trending not for the better, but for the worse in our hearts and minds? See, what we have in our story today, it's all about faith and it's all about Jesus and it's all about patience. This story inseparably links patience with faith. It demonstrates how if one is to have faith, true faith, especially when times are difficult, that patience must come with it. And this story shows to whom we must look to for our faith and that he is someone we could trust to wait on. This scene, as we noted last week with the healing of the demoniac, is not told by Luke simply to tell us a story of Jesus doing the miraculous. This is another story that we could call an enacted parable. It is something that really happened, but it's intended to tell us important truths about Jesus and the kingdom. What we'll see then is truths in our time together about who Jesus is for and why he is the only worthy object and bringer of salvation who we could trust in and rest in. And to do that, we'll consider seven points. Yes, I said that. I said seven points. That wasn't a mistake, all right? Don't worry, it's not going to go twice as long. 
going to go three times as long. No, I'm just kidding. It'll go normal time, all right? Seven points, and the first three will explore who salvation is for, and the last four will consider why Jesus is the only worthy Savior, okay? So the first three will explore who salvation is for, and the last four will consider why Jesus is the only worthy Savior. So first, our point number one is Jesus is for anyone. Jesus is for anyone. The scene opens in verse 40 with Jesus and his disciples landing safely back to the other side of Sea of Galilee after a short trip, we remember last week, in the Gentile territory of Gersenes. And did you notice the difference in reception of Jesus here as opposed to how he was received in Gersenes? In verse 37, the people wanted Jesus out of there, right? He didn't want him to leave because they cared more about their pigs than they did about the man who Jesus healed, right? They, they cared more about a potential cost to their pocketbooks of Jesus staying than they did of their own need for healing, so Jesus comes back to the other side of Galilee in verse 40. He's welcomed, yes, by the crowds who are actually waiting for him to come. Jesus' fame had spread, and people wanted to be near him in hopes that they could be healed. Or perhaps they just heard about him and they were curious. So they went to go see what all the hubbub was about. It is there, as the crowds press against him, that this man named Jairus comes up to him falls at his feet and begs him to come to his house because his only daughter of 12 years old is gravely sick. And she's so sick that if something is not done, she will assuredly die. Well, Jesus agrees to go with him to see his daughter, but it is then that something else happens in verse 43, right? A woman who has had a disease for as long as, did you notice, as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive comes up and touches the fringes of Jesus' clothes in hopes that she too could be healed. Perhaps she had heard about Jesus and had come to see if there was something he would, could do, or perhaps she was in the crowd and she heard the exchange between Jairus and Jesus and thought, if this man can heal that little girl, perhaps he can heal me too. And she goes and she reaches out and she touches Jesus' garment, and sure enough, she's healed. How quickly? Instantly. But what I want you to see, first of all, is a, the already wide range of characters in this intertwined story. Now, this miracle story, by the way, just some gee whiz for you, is the only one in the gospel. The only miracle story that is intertwined in all the gospels, okay, is this one. And we already see similarities between these intermingled stories. Chief among them is that the woman has had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and the Jairus' daughter is how old? 12 years old. Both Jurius and the woman need a miracle, and they both believe Jesus can provide it. But the similarities between them diverge after that. Luke notes that Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue. He would be the person who oversaw the local synagogue. He would put together the order of the worship. He would uh, schedule who would read from Scripture and who would teach and things like this. Now, the point is he's a religious leader, and he is going to Jesus. He shows us that all religious leaders at this time were not villains, right, who rejected and harassed Jesus. Jairus must have had a sense that Jesus was being used of God, even if he didn't fully understand exactly who Jesus was, his promised Messiah, or God in flesh. But Jairus was a well-to-do man. He was a man of means. He was a public leader. He was respected. He's a leader of the city. He's someone who had social standing. What about this woman? She's the opposite end of the societal spectrum. Her ailment 
that she has suffered for over a decade would make her unclean. She was shut out from fellowship and from religious life of Israel. She was constantly unclean. No one would go near her, and she was totally alone. On top of that, she spent all her money on doctors trying to find someone who could free her from this terrible illness. Surely she has been hoodwinked by some quacks, right, along the way, nefarious individuals who sort of witch doctors prescribing placebos just so they could take people's money, but nothing works, and she's alone. Unclean, broke, ashamed, which is why she tries to be as inconspicuous and small as possible as she getting to Jesus. So you have two people who couldn't be any more different. They have nothing in common. You have a well-to-do and respected religious leader and a poor and unclean woman who is utterly alone. And so this is what Luke wants us to see. Jesus is for anyone. Wealthy, poor, old, young, impressive by society standards, unimpressive by society standards, clean, unclean, it makes no difference to Jesus. He is neither impressed by status nor repelled by uncleanness. Whoever you are, no matter what your situation or station in life is, you can have Jesus. But Jesus is not just for anyone, and that's that. Jesus is for anyone, point number two, who is desperate. Jesus is for anyone, number two, who is desperate. The desperation of both Jairus and the woman shine through in this intermingled scene. Consider Jairus, he is well-respected religious leader, and yet here we see him falling down on his face before Jesus, begging for help. Understand, in this context, you just did not do that sort of thing. You just didn't do it. It's too undignified. People in lofty positions like Jairus did not fall prostrate before people, and they certainly did not do it in public. But he didn't care, and why? He's desperate. His only daughter's dying. And Luke wants us to feel the weight and the drama of this. She is all he has. No other children. One daughter, and this sickness threatens to steal her from him. He has nowhere else to turn. And I wonder if you think of another scene that is somewhat similar to this that we saw in chapter 7. Do you remember when a centurion had a sick servant? And he sent a delegation to go to Jesus and ask if he'd come and heal his beloved servant. And this was an act of great faith. But Jairus sends no delegation. He could have, but he doesn't. He goes to Jesus himself and he humbles himself and he begs for help because he is desperate. This is a great act of humility, isn't it? This is the way to the gospel. By humbling ourselves and seeing our great need and to be desperate for rescue. And to see that rescue must come from outside of ourselves, and then to see that Jesus is the only one who could provide the rescue that we need. Coming to Jesus takes humility to admit you are helpless and needy, which means shedding your pride. That's not a, is that an easy thing to do? Shed your pride? Is it easy in our world to shed our pride and ask for help? <laughs> Or is our society built on those who find inner strength and pull themselves up by their own bootstrap and make it on their own? Is that not who we prize in our society? Isn't that what we brag about, our being self-made? Who likes admitting neediness? 
I'm reminded of a historical story of a man named Roland, and he was a military leader under the Emperor Charlemagne. And Roland was leading a battle when he was caught by the enemy forces, and his odds of victory were slipping away by the second. Well, Roland had in his possession a horn whose blast could be heard from 30 miles away when blown. If he blew this horn, Charlemagne would come with his mighty forces and rescue Roland and his men. And Roland's friend Oliver begged him, blow the horn so that we could be saved. But Roland was too proud to ask for help. He wanted to win on his own, even when it was clear that this was impossible. So one by one, his troops fell fighting until he was the only one left. Then with his dying breath, he blew the horn and Charlemagne came to his rescue, but it was too late. Roland and all of his men were dead. Why? Because he was too proud to ask for help. He lost and he died because of his pride. The principle applies to the gospel. Unless man sheds his pride, unless he admits desperation and comes humbly, lying prostrate at Jesus' feet, begging for rescue, he will be lost forever. See, you and I, we want to come to Jesus and to people with our arms full of our accomplishments and our resume and our morality and our reputation, and our motivations and our money and our, and our possessions. Anything that we think will commend us to God and man. Anything to cover over what we know to be true in our hearts, which is that we are desperate. But none of that will do. We need to come to a place of desperation to get Jesus. Do you guys know that? Or else we'll never know him at all. Which is why so many never know him. It's why the road of life is narrow. And why the road to destruction is wide. As Tim Keller once said, if you want to become a Christian, all you need is need. All you need is nothing, but most people don't have it. Or as Robert Capone said, grace doesn't sell. You can hardly even give it away because it only works for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. Jesus was Jairus' only hope and he was this woman's only hope too. She tried everything possible to be healed and nothing worked. No one could help her. She was sick, unclean, lonely, afraid, completely poor, and she had waited 12 years with no end in sight. She tried everything and nothing worked. And in her trying everything, she went bankrupt trying to find someone who could make her whole. But she heard about Jesus and her desperation drove her to his feet too. And he healed her because the deeper spiritual truth here is that only Jesus can make us whole. Nothing else will do. Jesus is the only object of faith that will save Make no mistake, my friends, we will put our faith in something to bring us meaning and purpose and value. But nothing else but Jesus will fill us. This brings us to our third point. Point number three, Jesus is for anyone who is desperate and has faith in him. Jesus is for anyone who is desperate and has faith in in him. The woman hears about Jesus and she risks going in the crowds and among the people and she reaches out, touches Jesus, and that word touch is an important one. Did you notice? Look again at your 
Bible or Scripture journal, Luke wants to emphasize the word touch because he mentions it four times in verses 44 through 47. Do you see that? In every verse, 44, 45, 46, and 47, he mentions that word touch. She reaches out and touches him, and she's healed immediately. Twelve years. You think about how long ago, twelve years, where were you twelve years ago? A lot has changed since then, hasn't it? She has been afflicted, and now she's whole. Why? Because she has placed her faith in the right object. Here's the key. This is what matters. Where do you place your faith? It's somewhere. I can assure you. For you, where is your faith located right now, functionally, for your life? What are you looking to in order to get your purpose and meaning and value? to make you whole and complete, to save you. It's something. What is it? Now, I want you to notice Jesus' reaction here, okay? After the woman touches him, he stops and says, who was it that touched me? And Peter, can you imagine, <laughs> speaks up and says, Master, the crowds, do you see the irony there? He calls him Master and then teaches, tries to teach him. Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing on you. In other words, don't worry about it. There's no one there's no way to know. Can we keep going? But says Jesus, no, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out of me. Now, can it be that Jesus really didn't know who touched him? Of course he knew, and he healed her on purpose. It wasn't like she was healed unknowingly or accidentally. Jesus healed her because, as we have seen in every scene of this chapter, Jesus is someone who has unique authority over forces that stand in opposition to humans, such as storms and demons and death and disease. He has shown that he has power and he can distribute it as he wishes. So why does he say this here? Why ask who touched him? Here's why, okay? Because he wants the woman to testify to what he has done for her. He wants her to let people know that she had been afflicted and tried everything, but that only a touch from the Lord made her complete. She's already shown some courage, right, just by going out, joining the crowd, reaching out to Jesus. But now he wanted her to tell people of what God had done through Christ. You see in verse, see that in verse 47? She came trembling down, falling down before him, like Jairus did, by the way, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. She came trembling because she didn't want to be seen or known. She didn't want the attention. She didn't want people to know she had been unclean and she was embarrassed. And you can see why, right? So she does it. She testifies to what Jesus had done for her and in doing what no one and nothing else could do, which is make her whole again in an instant. Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He gives her peace. Finally. Finally. After 12 long years, she has peace. And what about her faith? Does Jesus draw attention to the size of her faith? No, it's not about that. It's about where she has placed it. Her faith is a trembling faith, isn't it? She's trembling. It's a faith that just had enough, just enough to reach out and touch Jesus. It was a faith that wanted to stay hidden, but at the prompting of Jesus, testified to his greatness. Friends, this is the kind of faith 
you need. This is all that's required. Some, you know, especially the, those who peddle the prosperity gospel, they talk about the need to have great faith. They talk about it all the time. You need great faith. If you don't have great faith, great things won't happen. That's what they say. You know, bad things happen to you. Well, you must have not had big enough faith or, or faith that was bigger than your fear or whatever. But is that what Jesus says like ever? Her faith is a trembling one, and Jesus affirms her for it. This is the key for us, okay? It's not about the size of faith. It's about where it's placed. Do you see? It's not about how big your faith is. If you can muster up enough faith, it's, is it in the right object? Let's illustrate this. Think of an airplane. Y'all like flying on airplanes? Any of you like it? Some of y'all dig it? I don't like them. Okay? There's nothing about them I enjoy. All right? I'm, I'm eight feet tall, and they're not made for me. Okay? And people hear that I don't like flying, and they're like, well, weren't you in the Air Force? And I'm like, yeah, but not everybody in the Air Force is a pilot, my dude. Right? But anyway, say you get on a plane, and there are people on the plane that are frequent flyers. Right? They, they, you've seen these people. Right? They know how everything will go, and they have not a single care right? Or worry in the world. They know this massive metal tube full of fuel and people going 500 miles per hour will get them safely to their destination, right? But then you have, say, you have someone on the flight who's deathly afraid. In their mind, they're imagining every scenario that could go wrong or what they've seen in movies, you know. On takeoff, they grab their spouse's hand and squeeze. They're nervous. They, they, they can't wait to land, and they will only feel safe once the plane is at the gate, right, at the next airport. But now here's the thing, okay? Both types of those flyers get to their destination, right? Even though some wrestle with doubt and some do not, they all get delivered to the same place at the same time. It's not like the captain walks back, right, out of the cockpit and, and tells the nervous person that because they don't have big, huge faith in him or the plane that they won't get to the destination. Everybody arrives at the same time. Friend, the size of your faith is not what Jesus ultimately cares about. What Jesus wants to know is, where do you place it? The object must be what is strong, Right? And what can you find that could bear your weight the way that Jesus can? There's nothing else in the whole world that could bear the weight of your life and hopes and salvation because everything else except for Jesus promises what it cannot pay. On top of that, if you're placing your faith in anything else that's not Jesus, then you need to be strong. You need to be strong. And that's why it's bondage to look anywhere else but him. The need to be strong and trust on flimsy foundations will keep you in chains and offer you no peace. But what if you have a weak faith in a solid foundation? Then will the size of your faith be what's important? Or the strength of the foundation? My friend, when life is hard and all you can muster up is a weak and trembling faith, do not despair. That's all that's required. If where you're looking is this strong Jesus. As we said last week, you don't need to be strong because Jesus is. You're free to be weak if Jesus is where your faith resides. A weak faith is enough to lay hold of a strong Christ. As Spurgeon said, our life is found in looking unto Jesus, not in looking to our own faith. 
By faith, all things become possible to us, yet the power is not the faith, but in the God in whom faith relies. But there's another key to faith in what happens next. Jairus is waiting for Jesus as all of this takes place. He's just standing there. Can you imagine how anxious he would be? How anxious would you feel if you were in his shoes? His daughter, his only daughter, lay dying at his house, and Jesus has agreed to come see her, but he's been held up by this other woman. If any of us were in Jairus' shoes, we'd be getting pretty antsy, wouldn't we? Well, then something happens in verse 49. Someone from Jairus' house comes and says, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher anymore. Jairus must be gutted from hearing this. His only daughter, 12 years old, is dead and died while what took place? Why waited for Jesus to heal this woman who was not dying? And who knows what he's feeling, but I think we can all imagine he, he has all kinds of mixed emotions after hearing this, right? Alternating between great sadness and pain is way, maybe anger and frustration at the delay. I mean, imagine if you had a loved one being transported via ambulance for an emergency and the ambulance had been delayed because they encountered a wreck that slowed traffic to a standstill because of some construction that was going on that has taken way too longer than it should have to be completed. Would you be upset? And impatient and irritated? Of course you would. But what, what if I told you this? What if the ambulance got delayed and took its time getting to the hospital with your loved one and it was the ambulance driver's fault that it took so long? Would you be upset with him? I bet you would. So why did Jesus make Jairus wait? It's because this woman was no less precious to Jesus than Jairus' daughter was. For she too is a daughter. And because Jairus needed what we all need, faith that is patient, like the good soil in the parable of the sower. And you see, this messenger who delivers the news, he has no faith, does he? He tells Jesus, Jairus, stop bothering Jesus. There's no point in Jesus going now because there's nothing Jesus can do. His faith had a limit, didn't it? Maybe he could have healed her while she was sick, but he can't possibly raise her from the dead. He thinks Jesus' going would be pointless. I want you to note that Luke points out that what Jesus said was in response to hearing what the messenger just said. He turns to Jairus and he says, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. See, whereas the woman had faith that needed bolstering, Jairus is being called to a faith that needs to be calm, persistent, and trusting. The woman was called to a faith that comes out of its shell. Jairus is being called to a faith that hangs in there. This is an important aspect of faith, the kind that not only trusts in the right object, but thus also trusts in his timing. The faith that Jesus is calling Jairus to is a faith that trusts God's care, which means accepting God's timing. We talked briefly at the beginning about the dangers of impatience in our lives and how they would make us short-sighted or give us a short fuse and all that. But the greatest of all dangers of impatience is to lack trust in God and to lack trust in His sovereign timing. John Piper put it like this, impatience is a form of unbelief. It's what we begin to feel when we start to doubt the wisdom of God's timing or the goodness of His guidance. It springs up in our hearts when the road to success gets muddy or strewn with boulders or blocked by some fallen tree. 
The battle with impatience can be a little skirmish over a long wait in a checkout lane. Or it could be a major combat over a handicap or a disease or circumstance that knocks us out half your dreams. The opposite of impatience is not glib, superficial denial or frustration. The opposite of impatience is a deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness either to wait for God where you are in the place of obedience or to persevere at the pace he allows on the road of obedience, to wait in his place or to go at his pace. Jesus is calling Jairus to have faith in his timing. He, he tells him, do not fear, only believe. In other words, put your trust in me. See, Jesus isn't calling him to have some kind of abstract faith that everything will work out in the end. He's calling him to place active trust in Jesus and to allow that active trust to drive out fear. Even if Jairus is impatient with Jesus' excursion with the woman, the truth is he just witnessed a miracle. Did he not? <laughs> From Jesus. He could trust him. He could trust this man. He has seen firsthand that Jesus can heal. Will he now take Jesus at his word that his daughter will be made well? That's up to Jairus, isn't it? See, often in our lives, trials look like a delay. We want things done on our own time, in our own way. We are control freaks, yes? We who want things done when we want them done, and any delay is unacceptable. But we allow that to affect how we see God. And so we assume when things don't go the way we think it should, when we think they should, that God has abandoned or forgotten us. But when you remember who it is that is in control, who it is that you are trusting then you can have a faith that perseveres, that patiently waits on God's timing, even when it's difficult, which, let's be honest, it is. This brings us to our final four points, which answer why Jesus is the only worthy object of our salvation and why we could trust him with patient faith. It's because, point number four, Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate. This, this is, has to be clear to us by now. Jesus cares for this woman, and he cares for Jairus, and he cares for Jairus' daughter. Remember again what Jesus says to the woman after he proclaims what he had done. What she proclaims Jesus had done. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You know, what love and tenderness Jesus shows here. Those must have been the sweetest words she had ever heard in her life. No one else wanted anything to do with her. She's too unclean. She's like a leper. She's like a, the demoniac in Gersenis. If she just touched someone, they would be made unclean. People didn't even want to be downwind from her. No fellowship, no friends, no religious activity, just being poor and alone. Everyone is afraid to touch her, but Jesus isn't afraid to touch her. Everyone keeps away from her, but Jesus wants her to come closer. Jesus doesn't rebuke her for touching him. In fact, it is... His touch that healed her. He's not afraid of her uncleanness, is he? See, the, the cleanness of Jesus is so powerful that it purifies those who are defiled. He's not defiled. The reverse happens. Jesus retains his cleanness, and the woman is purified. As we've said a couple times, Jesus can no more be made unclean by touching this woman than can the sun be defiled by the rising on the polluted world. He's not repelled by her. He affirms and encourages her. And this is the only, one and only time in all of the Gospels that Jesus calls someone daughter. 
And this harkens us back to verses 19 through 21. This woman who had nothing is a daughter of God because she has been incorporated into his family through her faith, exercised in Christ. She is a daughter, just as Jairus' daughter is one, for she has been adopted into Christ's family. David Garland says, Jesus will not let her slip away and remain anonymous. He forces the issue so that when she leaves healed, she will leave knowing that the one who healed her knows her and cares for her. She is a person who is worth taking time with and addressing. But we see Jesus' compassion again at the end of the scene, don't we? He goes to the home of Jairus. He sits next to his daughter. And what does he do? Do you see it? He takes her by the hand and says, child, arise. Now, why did he grab her hand? He didn't need to do that. You realize this? He didn't need to do that. He could have just spoken and she would have lived. In fact, he didn't even need to go to Jairus' house at all. He could have healed her from a distance, but instead he goes and he sits and he grabs her hand. Touch factors into both these stories because we're meant to see that Jesus cares for people. And he is grieved that they must suffer by virtue of living in a fallen world. Which is why he came in the first place. But if Jesus was simply compassionate and not powerful, that would not be good news. But the good news is, point number five Not only is Jesus compassionate, but he is indeed powerful. This is clear, isn't it? With a touch, a woman afflicted for 12 years is healed. And again, with a touch, the dead girl is brought back to life. This whole section has shown us that Jesus can rebuke a storm. He can control nature. He can exercise thousands of demons with one word who tremble at the sight of him because they know he can destroy them. And now we see he has power over disease and death too. Not only does Jesus care about you, friend, but he's in a position to do something about what ails you. Does this mean he'll do exactly what we want when we want? I think all of us can speak to experience. That's not true. Does this mean he'll always heal us physically when we ask? No, but it does mean that the one who loves us, sees us, and cares about us, is also the one who holds all things in his hand and is sovereign over every square inch of the universe and of our circumstances. This means that we could trust him and have patient faith in him even as we navigate hardships and suffering because we know we could trust his heart even when we can't trace his hand. We could trust that if deliverance in earthly troubles doesn't come when and how we want it, that this Jesus is still in control and must have a reason in mind that we may not see just now. This calls for trusting, patient faith. I think of a story a professor at Southern Seminary told of when he and his wife, his name is Timothy Paul Jones, he had, they, they had adopted a little girl named Hannah, and she had previously bounced around the foster care system. And he says, when, when she first started living with them, he would go into her room every morning, And he would uh, wake her up, and this is what he said. He said, when I touched her shoulder, her body stiffened, and her eyes flashed open. She looked frightfully around the room and then stared into my face. In those moments, she didn't seem certain at first where she was or who I might be. 
It was no wonder she felt this way. Thus far in her brief life, she had already lived with at least half a dozen different families. It's okay, I whispered. It's me, you're home now. And he continued a similar routine, continued for almost three months, every morning. She woke up with a start, stiff, armed, wide-eyed, and fearful. Then, one Saturday morning, something different happened. She didn't stiffen or glance wildly around the room when I touched her. She didn't even open her eyes. Instead, she simply rolled into my arms with her eyes closed and whispered, Good morning, Daddy. I love you. She had learned to trust my touch even when she couldn't see my face. He adds this, God is no less good when his healing happens in the next life than he is when healing happens in this one. Even when we cannot glimpse the contours of our Father's plan, he's still good. We could trust his hand even in those moments we cannot see his face. So it is with us, and it's why we can have a patient faith. The Jesus who saves us is the one who is both powerful and compassionate towards his children. But it gets better because, point number six, not only is Jesus compassionate and powerful, but he absorbs the cost of our sin and salvation. Point number six, not only is Jesus compassionate and powerful, but he absorbs the cost of our sin and salvation. I want you to note again what happened in verse 46. How did Jesus know someone touched him? What reason did he give? You've been in big crowds before, right? Where people are pressing against you. You just kind of accepted it. That, that's what happens when you're in big crowds. You get bumped into. That's Peter's argument, isn't it? But Jesus says, I know someone touched me. Why? Because power has gone out from me. What are we meant to see there? We're meant to see that the woman's healing cost something. But it didn't cost her. It cost Jesus. And it cost Jesus to get to you, too. The same one who has power and is compassionate, showed both of those things by coming and taking on flesh in order to die in your place. He's compassionate, so he's willing to die for you. He's loving, so he was glad to. And he's powerful, so he secured your release by conquering the grave and rising three days later, and he's the only one who could bear the sins of the world and stand in our place. Here is the object of faith and trust that you're being called to. Isn't he worthy? Is he not incredible beyond words? Friend, let it settle deeply in your bones. The one who can speak and create all things, the one who can still a storm with a word, can rise dead people to life, can heal a disease that no one else could, is also the one who sees you and loves you and feels for you and did something about it by dying in your place so that you could know him and live. So that you could be adopted into his family, so you could find true meaning and purpose and value and wholeness and reach out in desperation to the one who wants to be your strong man at all times when things are good and when they aren't so good. Salvation is found nowhere else. And wholeness is found nowhere else. And comfort is found nowhere else. But all of this is just a taste, don't you see? All that we see in this scene is pointing us not only to what Jesus will do on the cross and in the empty tomb, but what he will do at the end of time. And this leads us to our seventh and final point. 
Point number seven, not only is Jesus compassionate and powerful and our cost absorber, he plans on reversing our pain in the end. He plans on reversing our pain in the end. When Jesus gets to Jairus' house, there are already professional mourners there, weeping for his daughter. Jesus says to his parents, don't weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And what do the people do? They laugh because they know she's dead. Luke knows she's dead. Doesn't he say that in verse 53? She really is dead. So why did Jesus say she's sleeping? Because Jesus is saying, in effect, not a denial that she was dead, but it's a statement that death is temporary like sleep. What is death to people is no more than sleep to Jesus. See, Jesus' death and resurrection not only secures our salvation now, it's a promise that one day death itself will be destroyed. Because of what Jesus did in paying the price, death for those who give him allegiance in this life will be like sleep in that it will only be temporary. Jesus is showing us here a preview of the future. Friend, if Jesus has you by the hand in this life, then one day he will say to you too, child, arise. And you will resurrect to a body that knows no more death or pain or illness or sorrow. And just as he tells them to feed this little girl upon her being brought back to life, he will raise you and then have you sit at his wedding supper too. This is just a foretaste of what we will one day enjoy. 